Hi, everyone. Welcome to RPG R&D. Uh, we're excited to be here with you. My name is Jess Geyer. I am one of the wonderful co-hosts of this and more wonderful is my co-host, Craig. Craig, go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Craig Campbell um, of Nerdburger Games and Jess does uh, is one half of Wannabe Games. I should always mention that. <laughs> That's usually useful. Usually. <laughs> who are you again? <laughs> yeah, who, who, why? <laughs> <laughs> And we're here today with our special guest co-host, Joy Martin. Hi, Joy. Hi. Um, thanks for having me on. Yeah, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. So I am the owner of Drowning Moon Studios, which is a small tabletop and LARP RPG publisher. Um, and I am also a paid GM, professional GM, I don't know, for Magpie CPP, which is their curated play program. That's awesome. That's that's a really fun kind of dream job to have. <laughs> it's like the video game tester job of <laughs> teaching and RPGs. You, and then you become a video game tester. And you're like, why did I want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> As someone who has done that. But now, GMing's a lot more fun than, than testing video games. You don't have to bump into every single wall along over the way. And over <laughs> again, just to make sure oh. it's the same wrong thing. Yeah. I do that when I'm not testing video games. <laughs> Uh, Craig, why don't you tell us a little bit about what this podcast is all about? Uh, sure. We're going to talk a little bit about a like kind of a GMing topic um, for GMs out there. And uh, and then we're going to hit on a game design topic as well for prospective uh, designer types who are out there looking to maybe um, hack their own game or create a new game or do whatever. Um, and the hacking thing, we'll get to that in a little bit. That uh, came up specifically because of today but um today we're starting with uh talking house rules uh and i guess the 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 question ultimately is um who house rules here everybody everybody probably everybody at some oh, i'm yeah. guessing yeah <laughs> there was a there was a discourse on the old twitter a while back about whether or not game designers play rules as written and uh i was like <laughs> And I, I, I chimed in once just to let everybody know, no, mm -hmm. <laughs> during play testing. Yeah. Kind of, you know, more rules as written, but once the, once you're past play testing, I think even game designers will oftentimes, I mean, you, you tailor things for the table, you tailor for the experience that that player group wants to have. So if there are optional rules available, you might mix and match some things, or you might just soften something up or make something a little tougher. Um, what, uh, what, are, what are all of your experiences with house ruling? I almost always house rule unless I'm playing like somebody's game at a convention uh, and it's not my game and I'm running it specifically for that company. I'll house rule all the time, especially if I'm just playing at a table and the stakes are, is everyone at my table having fun? Um, house rules are just another way to differentiate for your players and the things that they like and the stories that you want to tell. And, you know, not every game is going to be everything for you want to find a system that's close to kind of the style you you want to play but even then that's not going to be a perfect match it's kind of like tailoring your clothes like yeah you can grab something off the rack and wear it but if you get it tailored it's going to fit so much nicer you're gonna look so much better you're gonna have way more fun with it uh, but yeah i always like i can't think of a single campaign i've ever run that i didn't use house rules for what about you joy yeah i'm kind of the same way um 
mostly when I'm doing house rules, it's because the particular table that I'm with, like, wants a certain style of play or something is too complex. Like, and I'm not saying they don't understand the rules. I'm saying, like, this is taking forever. Let's speed this up, which is a lot of times where I use house rules, especially during, like, scenes where it's going to go on for, like, 20 minutes. And you're like, this is really not that important to the story we're telling. So let's just kind of abbreviate this a little bit. Um but yeah, it's just, it really depends on the group I'm playing with. Um, I won't do it again, like Craig said, during playtesting, because in that point, you're trying to make sure the rules do exactly what they're supposed to do. But outside of playtesting, yeah, it's, I, I'm not going to say it's every table, but it's pretty close. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought that discourse that was on, there's always discourse on Twitter. <laughs> yes. There's always discourse on Twitter. When I play my own games, like if I if I feel like it I will also house rule it just it I don't know I think it's part of a of a gaming experience the uh, games are interactive mm -hmm. on purpose that means you don't just interact by by playing the rules you interact with the rule set itself and you know if you're this isn't in the designing portion of our <laughs> of our uh podcast today but if you're a good designer, you're going to account for that somewhat in your games too. There are lots of games that include rules on how to house rule. In fact, like there are game designers that are expecting you to make changes. And that's just, yeah, I, 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 I thought that I, was so strange. I don't think I've ever seen, I, I don't think I've ever read a game book that said you like, you know, you, you must play the game exactly as it's written here. Like this game is so finely tuned. <laughs> that you must play it exactly as written and like it, if if the if the gm doesn't um or, or, or if the designer doesn't say something along the lines of you know like if if there's not a rule for it make it up if you uh you know if you want to tweak something do it um you know and just kind of give that blanket permission sometimes like right at the beginning of the rule section or in a sidebar where they talk about the idea of house ruling um yeah just i mean go for it i think the biggest the biggest hurdle to successfully house ruling as a GM is making sure that kind of the, you've got the group buy-in on it. Like the players are all looking for that same sort of change to things. Like if somebody comes into the game expecting that you're going to really crunch the numbers on combat, you got it. Like if you got a, a crunch heavy game, that there's going to be a lot of dice rolling, that combat's going to be a little slow, maybe, um, especially if they've got players who are new. Um, and need a little more time to to kind of get through their turn and roll the dice and everything. Um, just, you know, make sure that everybody's on board with that. Uh, you know, you don't want to go to average damages. Like one of one of my favorite rules for uh, house ruling for any game that gets crunchy on damage dice is just doing average damage. Um, if, if it's not like a crit or something, you just do whatever the average is for that mm -hmm. thing is. It keeps, you know, just like one less die roll every time somebody hits. Um, and, and, or maybe the GM just does average damage or, um, it, it helps to kind of keep things moving along, especially when there's multiple combatants. Um, but if, you know, if you've got two players who are expecting like, no, there's going to, I want the swinginess of rolling that 3d6 plus three for whatever that giant monster attack is. And I want to know that occasionally you're going to get a 21 on that. And it's going to make us all go, oh no, <laughs> um, then yeah uh just like get everybody on board i think is one of the biggest it's like it's it's so funny jess so much of our gming advice comes down to just get everybody on board yeah i mean but that's <laughs> that's kind of the base rule for everything that's the golden rule of 
of gaming is make sure everyone is having mutual fun. Otherwise, why are you playing? Why are you playing a game that is meant to be for your entertainment? This is not work. It's not school. Just, you know, you, you, you're coming together because you want to be entertained for a couple hours, you know? And Joy, you mentioned that you um, house rule sometimes to, to make things quicker. Can you give an example of like, what are like some of your house rules that you do to make things smoother and faster? So um, especially like it for, and Craig was talking about combat. Combat is one of the things I house rule a lot, unless we're playing a game that like is really, people are really into the crunchy numbers and they really want that. Um, especially a lot of times with big group combat, if you're fighting group on group, where your players are fighting a group of, of NPCs or something similar that can take forever. So a lot of times I will like say, okay, well, you're going to roll once and we're going to determine, you know, your success based on this and just kind of speed through it because otherwise you're spending a lot of times like the entire game session on one combat and that's not always fulfilling for everybody. So that's definitely one I do. There's um, there are some other types of households I like to do, particularly for, um, supernatural abilities, especially if people have things where they see visions or something like that. I usually prefer instead of them doing it like in the middle of the session, which kind of stops everything for all of the other players, is have them doing it at the beginning of the session so they kind of know what's coming. Like they get little hints of here's what the plot's going to be. And then they can interject during the play and say, oh, I, I remember this. I dreamt about this or something. Yeah, I love that too. I've played in a campaign where in the rules and it was rules made by our gm it was just a completely um homemade game homebrew game um i was playing a character and i took a lot of points in in this predictive power and according to the rules it was something i could roll for in the middle of the game but he decided that like no i want this to kind of be the springboard for each investigation mm -hmm. and it made my experience so much more fun that way i loved that that is a house rule I, I have experience with and agree with. <laughs> it, it, it does, it just takes a little bit of creativity and thought too. There, there's a lot of stuff you can dig in with, with any kind of game where like, oh, this would be a cool thing to do. And if you let the rules hold you back from that as like some kind of, like there's no game police that's gonna come around and, and slap <laughs> your hands, slap the dice out of your hand and tell you like, no, that's not what free parking does in Monopoly. Like, no, one, no one's doing this to you. You can play the game the, the way that makes things enjoyable. I, I think it really it, it upset me too, seeing people say like, all like game designers always play the rules as written because that just, it's, I don't know. It's, it's another form of rules lawyering that yeah. just, constricts you you want to explore a little bit that might be something you put into a version 2.0 of your game or add to a rata later if you wanted to but mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's just unnecessarily strict uh, one of the other things i like to do is like kind of and i know other people have used this phrase but the rule of cool like if a, a player is describing something their character is doing and it's really cool and they don't like they don't roll particularly high or maybe they just miss it. I'll be like, mm, I'm going to let you do that anyway. And there's going to be repercussions, but because you did this in such an interesting way and it was so like vital and engaging, I want you to succeed at that because it makes the story more interesting. Yeah. 
rule of cool. Well, if you put rule of cool in your book, then that's always following the rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and one one of your house rules can be where you know people can can, can players could even um, petition at the table and say, hey, you know, I I I know I just missed hitting the target number for that thing. Can I can I can I do it? And then you know, but with this downside, like, you know, have, mm -hmm. let a player player say like, you know, I, I succeed at the thing, but then this other terrible thing happens or the, you know, the, the GM of course can come up with something like um, that's, that's one of the the hallmarks of so many indie game designs is failing forward where you've, you're, you're getting like a partial success or doing a little something, but then there's something that complicates the story or creates a problem down the road. Um, or that makes, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, makes up like a personal problem for a character kind of come to the fore um that that's an easy one to house roll into any kind of game system where if you if you miss by just like one or two or whatever um is like say okay well I, i'd like to do that <laughs> but i will take the consequences that go with it um and it just makes for a richer story yeah i i house rule a lot too with like items and different abilities like i like i guess that's more closer to hacking a game a little bit um i don't know there this there's a gray murky area in between. There's a whole spectrum of, of changing things. Going from your strict rule play to making your own game, there's a lot of room in between. Uh, but I like to do new items and, and change the way items work or um, you know, change the way like rolling on like uh, random tables and things. I will add things to those tables or take things out that just don't work with my play. And, you know, it just creates a, a better, richer experience. I'm trying to think of times where house ruling didn't really work out for me. I'd um, have to give that some hard thought because yeah. I've yeah, surprised so. players with doing stuff and they, they kind of got on board with it after the fact. They weren't expecting it necessarily. Like when I started playing in college, low those many years ago, um, everybody that I was playing with had been playing since they were like 10. Um, so they knew like we were, and we were playing D and D and they knew what orcs were like. They knew everything about what you could expect when you fought an orc. This is back before fourth edition allowed us like fourth edition D and D and uh, to an extent five, but fourth edition in particular had all like different variations of orcs and all those, you know, like, you know, an orc was an orc. Right. Um, and I regularly, even as the tiny brand new GM, <laughs> I rewrote like what orcs are like in the world that I was running because it's like, I, I'm gonna throw orcs at these people and every single one of these players is gonna know exactly how to handle an orc or an ogre or a mind flare or this or that. So I, I threw twists into the monsters because you've got players that are through no fault of their own, just cognizant of everything about that thing because they've played the game so much. Yeah, yeah, there, there are, whole books too that are dedicated to like hey we know that that this is what this monster manual says but here's another supplement <laughs> let's make it better i i hate that when i'm playing a game that like a like a like a really popular game like D D, and my players know almost like down to the exact amount of hit points a certain type of monster has I'm gonna change it. I I, mm -hmm. I I I want things to be unpredictable for them at times. Sometimes I want it to be predictable, but yeah. Yeah, I was thinking um, when you mentioned like, was there a time that ever didn't work out? And I can think of like one time. Technically, it was two times because it was the same player, and it was because I was with the rest of the group. Especially, I was like 
you know, adjusting things a little bit for their style of play. And he was just, he wanted everything to be by the book, just exactly the way it was written. And I finally had to like pull him aside and go, that's just not the way the rest of the group wants to play. You're welcome to keep playing with us, but they're just, they don't want by the book. They want more um, narrative style play. And he eventually got on board with it, but it was like two different games that this happened and with the same player. And I was, I finally just had to talk to him and go, we're not really playing the same game. I, you are, I think. And if we can get on the same page, we can keep going, which we did. That's, that's good that you're able to get uh, this person on board with you with that. I can understand the sentiment of, of wanting to play everything by the book, especially like some people who are uh, not neurotypical might need that as a support. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I get it. I, I, yeah, I guess the biggest piece of advice still is, is have a good session zero and, and get everybody on board. Talk to (laughs) players, find out what they want. And and there's something to be said for playing a game, especially if it's a very dense game with a lot of rules and playing it rules as written or, or with the, you know, most minimal house rules. Um, Because there's, and if this is the type of game that everybody wants too, there's uh, there's something to be said for the satisfaction of gaming the game of like you have all these rules and we're going to play them all exactly as they're written. And so now I'm going to put together a character that takes like this cool ability and this spell and this <laughs> magic item and all these little things and create these great little combos. And I'm going to my character's going to be, be able to do these really cool things um, and playing that game. That was something that I had never given any consideration to until partway through third edition D&D when people started talking about like you've got so many source books and the game by its nature um, at that point with that much material written for it um, rewards if you're going to be able to use everything if you're allowing everybody at the table to use everything it rewards players who game the game because you can find all those little quirky um edge cases where like you've got okay i've got every kind of bonus i can possibly have to hit <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fun to do that sometimes <laughs> it's yeah, if fun that's to your find. thing when you find it that's that's great yeah. I, mean, I'm, I am a shameless ben maxer so like if i'm <laughs> if i am a player and you let me do x things and you say you can do all this and i will find the best combination of of skills and points and whatever it is just I, maybe it comes from writing systems because I like putting things together like a puzzle like that. But I also have to make sure, again, with like the group I'm playing with is like, are you okay with me doing this? Is it all, you know, do you want me to take the mechanics out for a ride or do you want me to be like, you know, a little less nerdy? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, checking into whether you're a player or a GM at the end of the session and, and asking like, hey, how did this go? And like, what do you think about this? It's, it's always a good way to check the temperature of the group. I think one of the instincts a lot of GMs have is that when things are going too easy for the players because they are, you know, exploiting some of those rules, this is getting a little bit beyond house ruling, but when, when players Ex- are exploiting house rules to the point that like sometimes, you know, house rule hasn't really been play tested and you suddenly realize that it's kind of messing with things, yeah. what that you're talking, it can happen with house rules too. Sure, Continue yeah, and like maybe things are going like now. Now your players are like gods, and they're just <laughs> doing whatever they want. Maybe that's making them happy, but if it's also not making you happy while you're playing, that's something to investigate. But if if the players are having fun and you check in with them, and they're having fun and you're having fun, have the fun. Have the fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Does anybody have any favorite house rules? Especially if they're one just just um, if if you've got, if you've got something specific for a specific system, that's great. Let's let's share those absolutely. But if you've got something that's just like conceptually can be ported across systems that people could use in different games, we got suggestions. I'll I'll start while you think about it. Um, I I enjoy using um, something that I've referred to for years as the Indiana Jones rule, which is whenever you whenever the player fails whenever you whenever you have the worst failure whether it's like you know you roll a one on a d20 in a, in a d20 game or something whatever the really bad thing is if it doesn't already if the, especially if the system doesn't already have something built in to give you something as kind of recompense <laughs> for for your dice sucking um is to give uh whatever the benny is for the game right whatever the little point system is that you've got bennies or or inspiration points or you know, spirit points or whatever um, for those big failures, because then when later you can use those points when you really need it to succeed, because sometimes your dice do not cooperate with you and you just roll really poorly a bunch of times. Um, and it just always reminds me of Indiana Jones just constantly failing, um, except when it's really on the line, like he just fails, 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 and then he succeeds when he really needs to. Um, and that makes for um, an entertaining um, dynamic in the game as well. Um, and it helps to assuage some of that, oh, I rolled a one again. Jeez, you are fired and dice getting flung across the room and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I've, I've incorporated things like that into games that I've designed. I've used them in other systems. Yeah, I, I actually have some reward people for sucking. Yeah, I actually have a lot of the games I've designed have that where if you fail really badly, it gives you some sort of benefit later. Like either you can hold it and do something cool later, or you can. Um, the one that I released most recently was uh, every time you fail a particular type of role, it gives you basically a mana pool for another type of skill. So if you fail one, you can do more of the other. If you fail the other one, you can do more of the one. You know, it's kind of like a Kind of like a seesaw almost um but like probably my my most useful and across system house rule is that if the game doesn't have uh character creation rules built in where the characters know each other like there's like because i know like powered by the apocalypse has a lot of like you know how how do you know like x person what of what sort of favor have they done for you or something like that and a lot of games don't have that I like to do that during character creation where I'm like, okay, so this person, how do you know them? Like, where did you meet them? This sort of thing that way. You're not like 10 strangers in a tavern and you never really have any, an, uh, a reason to interact with each other. Once you make like the ties before the game begins and make sure that all of the players have ties to at least two or three other characters, it makes games run a lot smoother from what I've noticed. Yeah, I love that about Powered by the Apocalypse games is that character tie-in at the beginning. Uh, yeah, there's a lot that you can mine in that system, which I'm sure I will talk a lot about <laughs> <laughs> in our next uh, segment. My favorite house rule is ending a scene early if it works for the scene. I I hate in combat where like obvious we're we're just going to Julius Caesar this last little thing do we have to continue rolling out the scene can like if there's not a rule for it already in the game 
like this, this, yeah, they, they pack up and run away. They're afraid of you or they give up or like, yeah, you make quick work of them and you end the scene. There's no reason to, to drag it out. Even if there's like that little tiniest chance, like maybe they'll rally and get 20 national twenties in a row. not going to happen. Statistically not going to happen. It's okay to move on unless they really, I guess, enjoy kicking a dire bear or something whatever they're fighting um that's that's one of my most useful ones just kind of quick up quicken up that combat yeah once the leader is done and the brute is done and the spellcaster is done like maybe <laughs> like the, the 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 two weakling guards like run away or yeah. or, 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 or you just tell me how you mop it up or finish it yeah rather yeah. than relying on dice rolls i had a campaign that was like years ago where we like multiple sessions, multiple combats, we found ourselves doing exactly that. The players would be smart. They would go after like the biggest threats, take the big threats out, and then they'd go to mop up, you know, whatever smaller threats there were. And invariably, that's when everybody's dice would fail them. Mm. And we found ourselves just slogging through like, okay, this is a four hit point kobold. <laughs> just kick it, kick it off the field. Just like punt it. Like, just like say, go, go on your way, little kobold. You have, you have, you have bested us and you will live to fight another day. Just do something because they just could. Yeah. It was terrible. Um, well, that's and, when you as a GM take that kobold and you make it the big bad. For later remember, on. That, remember that kobold you couldn't kill in the fourth combat of the entire campaign. He's back. <laughs> and look at how big he is. <laughs> out <laughs> yeah i i like the idea of that at the end of the combat where there's just like you know one or two people remaining especially because when i have done that then if they surrender the pcs then inevitably like ask them talk to them and i'm like okay well this one actually has a tragic backstory so now you feel like you need to help him instead of beat him up or something like that yeah it, that's Oh, there's there are so many times where where I've used that to my advantage, and and oh, now you have a you, you have this person following you around. You basically have the golem of your group now. Exactly, <laughs> you're keeping yeah, him around. But there's there's so many directions you can go with that. Like you can turn him into the the person. You know, like he becomes the baddie that gets away and comes back to to get him to get everybody later because you just killed his brother. Um, or he becomes like he turns into like you know you spared my life I mean I owe you everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, turns into the knight squire. Um, yeah. I've done that in a campaign where the like the 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 the, the, the combatant that uh, was the one the one left over that they all spared um, like joined the party became an NPC became a uh, a squire and for the record did not betray them. Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's an easy temptation. The last, the last time I had that happen, um, I came up with a plot line just off the fly when they were talking to the NPC. And I said, he basically told them that he was only part of this bandit group because they had press ganged him and that his sister was still like kept prisoner. And they're like, we've got to help this guy. <laughs> oh, excellent. That's, that's fun. It, it would be handy as a GM to keep a list of potential tragic backstories for surrendered NPCs. <laughs> that's an that's a really interesting idea for like a little zine quest kind of thing. Is just like a bunch of you know a bunch of lists of those types of things. Like take all find all the trope things and like what are the different ways you can twist this rather than killing off the one little the one lone monster. Like what could that monster turn out to be? You can title it. So you spared the mook. 
Oh. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> These are the things that you can do <laughs> when you don't follow the rules to a T. <laughs> I like kind of like I, I mentioned um before, like there's this spectrum of of going from like a your your house ruling a little bit, you start to homebrew a lot more stuff, and suddenly you're designing games. You don't know how you got there. Um, but like hacking games kind of falls into that. And I've always been curious where like where does this line fall between like you are house ruling something and then you are hacking a system? At what point does it become a hack? I think. Oh boy. I think it's if you're doing something that not necessarily hasn't been done before, but just hasn't been done often enough that it's common, like you'll you'll start experimenting with like rule systems and you'll come up with something and you're like, I've never seen anyone do this before. And then you start building off of it. And that's at least for me, that's where it's it's come from, where I see something and I'm like, I like the idea behind this. I like the mechanics, but what if I tweak them just a little bit and then it just becomes a different game entirely? Yeah, I, I think that that kind of sums up what my feelings are on that too. Like it's it's not just like a couple rules, but you are purposefully building something new out yes. of out of those parts. Yeah. Yeah, something unique. Yeah, it's 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 I think less of a question of like if you if you make a, a few little tweaks because it's in, it's in the intent, right? It's it's I make a few little tweaks to make this game the way I want it to be, or do I make some tweaks to make this new thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we mentioned Powered by the Apocalypse before, and I mean every Powered by the Apocalypse game is a hack of Apocalypse World, and there are lots of systems out there like that. So, Joy, what are what is your experience with with hacking systems? Um, so I've done Powered by the Apocalypse. I have done um, Trophy, which is, that one's interesting because the, the rule system is mostly pretty simple, but it's the way that you apply it and how it relates to the world because the world in Trophy is the antagonist. So you kind of have to like change the rules of the world to kind of hack Trophy. Um, with Powered by the Apocalypse, I'm not going to say it's easy because it is not easy to make moves in Powered by the Apocalypse that are interesting and that work correctly, but it's very flexible, that particular system. Like you can just, it's not perfect for every game, but you can take it and you can apply it to a lot of different settings and situations and make it something that's uniquely its own. Those are the two that I mostly have worked with so far because I actually I came to designing backwards where I started writing my own systems before I ever did a hack of anything. And um Sometimes that's actually a detriment for me because I'm so used to just coming up with something that's completely unrelated. And then I'm like, that does not work with the system. <laughs> yeah, I originally started out with the intent of creating a system. And then we were like, no, stop. We can do this. <laughs> we can do this one instead. There's already a framework for something that we want to do um, that works. What about you, Craig? Um, I'm going to learn a lot from the two of you having experience with hacking because I have not done a great deal of hacking. Um, I will have a lot more to say when we get into talking about designing your own systems because that's always what I'm doing a lot, at least a lot of the time is because I'm, I'm always sort of challenging myself to come up with something um, that does what I want it to do. Um, but like the, the thing that I've learned with PBTA 
or that I've he I've heard from from people who have designed powered by the apocalypse games is that it's easy to write a power and it's yes. easy to write a power that or a move that kind of does some interesting things but to get it to really sing and really jive with what the game is about on a on a deeper level and really be like perfect um is is really hard work because yeah. there's 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 such fine tuning that you can do in um, in that the, the structure that's used for those moves um, with like, you know, how, what, what sorts of, you know, what does a seven through nine get you? What does that 10 plus get you? And like, just like slight tweaks can change the, the dynamic of how that functions um, quite a lot. Um, so, you know, and that's not to say that you can't hack something and, and put something together. That's fairly, you know, a fairly straightforward hack that doesn't get into um, super, super fine tuned depth. But I think, uh, that system probably benefits a great deal um, when it comes to hacking from really putting a lot of time and playtesting the crap out of it and seeing like what those little changes do. And also to be honest, and I think this is probably the case for hacking systems in general, is being really familiar with the system to begin with, having played the game in a, in a few different incarnations to see how does, a, for just as an example, how does a masks game differ from apocalypse world different from lot. dungeon world yeah i mean <laughs> the frameworks the frameworks are are this are so similar but there's such um such a great deal of innovation that has gone into varying yeah. what happens on that framework on that chassis that uh very very different things very very different things can happen i think fate can work the same way yeah um the fate system is very straightforward but there's different you can come up with like a whole new subset that kind of hangs its hat on the fate system, but makes it feel completely different because all of a mm -hmm. sudden you've added this thing that's very unique to that particular game. Yeah, I think the danger in hacking a system is just putting a new skin on it and, and calling it good because you want to be very purposeful when when you're either when you're creating your own mechanics for a game or when you're hacking an existing system to make sure that the rules and the theme and the setting of the game like we've mentioned this on the show before that they meld really well together and that they they work in tandem uh there there are going to be rules in a, in a system that you're hacking that you don't need they they're like vestigial limbs on the system you can take them away you don't need to keep it there uh and and it i being able to identify those things it that is a lot of hard work and research um i i played i had been really familiar with uh monster of the week when i started making moonpunk moonpunk is a powered by the apocalypse game um and i had i had played a lot of monster of the week and that was the system of powered by the apocalypse that i was most familiar with and i had also played a couple other um smaller uh shorter games um within that purview uh but what i did after that was i mean yeah i'm not gonna have time to play every single one of these games but i could look through the rule books and see like okay this is the change that they made that works with this system in particular like what monster of the week does to make their system work for you know the monster of the week style investigative stuff is is how the monsters work and how 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 the the threats work in the system uh, that's not something i needed for punk's 
on the moon. That was not a, they, they were not monsters that were snatching people away or separating the players and, and things like that. Uh, thinking about those things and, and moving beyond just, okay, I'm going to take this wholesale and I'm going to put new words on it and I'm done. That is, that's a, maybe a good jumping off point, but that shouldn't be the, the end point. Yeah, especially with Powered by the Apocalypse, because a lot of the time you'll, if you're just like copying, here's what this move is, and here's what this move is, and here's all of the, you know, changed um, wordage for it. A lot of times you'll get moves that just don't matter in the game that you're writing. Like, yeah. it's just like, I, I wrote a two-player um, Powered by the Apocalypse game that was about going into the underworld to find your, your missing love. And at first, when I first did like the very first draft of it, it had like a bunch of combat moves. And then like, as I was going along, I'm like, this really doesn't, it's not a combat heavy game. Like if you run into like, you know, uh, I don't know, a Titan or something, you might want to fight it, but more or less, you're basically discovering things. It's a game about discovering things about the underworld and discovering things about your love. So I wrote out almost all of the combat and introduce new things like, you know, is there a secret here? How do you unveil that secret? Um, if you come across a denizen of the underworld and they need something, how do you convince them that you will help them to get the thing you need? You know, stuff like that. It, it's basically knowing what kind of game you're writing and then fine tuning the mechanics to fit that particular style. Yeah, that that's, you made a really good point there too. Like with, if your game is about making discoveries you need to make sure that there's a, a rule like you probably want to make sure that there's a rule in there regarding that and maybe it's a core center rule of it um, and you if you just reskinned it you wouldn't have that flavor that that could really bring out the, the unique thing about your game yeah you, you gotta really really when you're hacking understand what makes your game different what is your game about and and use that to your advantage and yeah the combat rules combat rules again though that's it's always vestigial in <laughs> like there there are combat rules in lots of games that don't need them uh, and you can take them out your game doesn't need the rules there you can you don't need hit points if you're not going to be fighting like if you're if you're playing a game about smooching people, you don't need <laughs> hit points. <laughs> or you can do emotional hit points. So every time they do something, you're devastated. Oh yeah. <laughs> I find it interesting that like I think a, a, a good I mean at least this is the approach that I would take if I was going to hack a system is familiarize myself with a number of variations of the system and my my brain because this is how i would want to break it down and maybe this will help some people who are approaching this is to like literally sit down and go through the system and figure out okay here's all the pieces of this system here's what masks has mm -hmm. it has moves that are kind of like the traditional the way we think of moves to be it's got some it's got conditions it's got some currencies it's got the character uh, kind of uh, relationship stuff that you use to set up everything it's got what is it called moment of truth mm -hmm. like the big thing that you're like the big the, the golden apple that you're after for your character like this big thing that you're going to be able to gain at some point 
Um, and then and do that for a bunch of different game systems and or a, dump, a bunch of different powered by the apocalypse systems. And the same can go for fate games or other ones that have a lot of variations and see what what are the core things that kind of are always there and, and, and look at, OK, well, how can I utilize those and massage those into what do I what I need? But, you know, not every PBTA game has currencies not every you know like point systems that you where you build up and spend points or you build up to a threshold and then something happens mm -hmm. um you know does your game need that is, is there a reason for a point system if you're making a political game where you're going to influence people um in, in in large subsets of people and, and organizations and politics and stuff like maybe yeah maybe you want to build there's a pool system that you build up and when you hit a certain threshold that's the point where you like you get to make something happen in the politics um, but if your game is about like introspection and uh, personal like uh, emotional relationships with each other, maybe you don't really need a point system that you're going to spend anything on. Maybe you need more about, you know, uh, like condition type things where your characters, how your character is affected by what other people do in the game. Yeah, that's especially true with Powered by the Apocalypse with the like the one shot games, things like Bluebeard's Bride, where it's just a single session. Like you're really not gonna need any type of pool of points for much of anything, so it's just not part of the game, and that's kind of how I did with the the two player game I was talking about. That's um, underworld related. Follow me down. There's just there's no points. You don't get any points. There's no advancement system. It's a one session game. It's you play it from beginning to end in like six hours. So what would be the point of adding that in? Unless your pool of points was like, oh, once you gain two. <laughs> something like i can get two points in in a, in a four-hour game session yeah bluebeard bluebeard's bride is a really good example of how different a hacked game can be from the original if if you didn't say like if if you didn't know you might not realize that it was built on another system and i i think a lot of people want to make their own, like, I'm, I'm not saying making your own system is bad, Craig. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people uh, think that making your own system is the ideal. This is the thing that you should be doing. You are a serious game designer if you do this, and it's not as serious if you are hacking an existing system. But it's just so weird because hacking is really hard. <laughs> it it's is. All, it's all it's all hard work. Yeah, it's not. It's just not, in different ways. It well, it can be derivative, but done well, it's it's not derivative. It's not it's it's only as derivative as every other tabletop RPG is out there. Like you're all you're all deriving something from a from a previous work. It's not like you're creating in a vacuum. You didn't wake up one day with no experience of ever playing TTRPGs and decided I'm gonna do it. I had this great idea. Uh, you 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 know you're building off of things that you already. Um, no and love. Joy, have you ever run into that where where like someone judges the system? Well, oh, it's it's like it's just a hack. Oh yeah, all the time. And the really funny thing is like as someone who designs my own system and does hacks, I find hacks harder to do because you're taking something that already exists and then trying to like reshape it or refine it toward something that you're building. Whereas if you're doing uh, original system creation, it's assuming that you do it similar to how I do it, it's organically. Like when you're designing the game, you're gonna be like, okay, and I need this particular skill for this and I need these points for that. And so it's like putting a puzzle together. 
Whereas with something that you're hacking, it's like, it's like taking a lump of clay or a sculpture and then like very carefully shaving off the pieces and reshaping it to something that's going to work for you. So, but yeah, people all the time will be like, oh, it's just, a, especially with Powered by the Apocalypse, because there's a lot of games that are built off that system, where they'll be like, oh, it's another Powered by the Apocalypse hack. And I'm like, do you realize how hard, have you ever tried to hack Powered by the Apocalypse? Because even if you've hacked other games, PBTA is really hard to do, or at least hard to do well. I was literally going to make the comparison of taking a clay sculpture and shaping it into something else. <laughs> <laughs> on the same great, great minds think alike. Yeah. Um, or, or, or the idea that like, it's, uh, you know, game design is like, uh, hacking is like, here, you've got a box full of Lego pieces and it's going to be the same set of Lego pieces all the time. And you don't have to use all of them, but this is only, the, these are the pieces you get. Yep. Um, and you'll build from that. And I made a dinosaur. <laughs> and, hey, you and made I a spaceship. made a spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and then you have the weird people who are like, I made a shoe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I made love. <laughs> this is yeah. a love made out of Legos. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of weird. Um it's it's a very ship of theseus type situation to like oh god yes <laughs> like at what point does this become a new system entirely like when do you start labeling it as your own thing like i don't i don't really think that there's a hard and fast rule for it i think people just give credit i think even the the bakers who who designed apocalypse world said like if you like they said something similar to if you think it's a powered by the apocalypse game then yeah that's the label like yeah. if, if that was inspired like that's so loose that's that's so loose. Yeah. In and inspired I, by okay yeah. so th what's the variation on that like okay i take apocalypse world and i i change the playbooks to be something else but the game is otherwise yeah, you know, has all the same components or do i take the the basic move system and use that move system but everything else goes away and I completely invent new stuff to, to rack on that move system. Um, you know, what's inspired by apocalypse world. They, well, they both are. Um, it's just one, one, one hones closer. Um, you know, one cleaves closer to the original than, than another one does um, because there are certain core elements to each system that, you know, you, you, you honestly, you could argue that, you know, even a game, if you design a game system from absolutely nothing, um, from the ground up like they're still inspired by mm -hmm. you know other stuff you might be borrowing concepts from other games um but there's yeah i think there's there's fundamental pieces of different systems that like as long as some of these things are in there it's still kind of it's still you know a hack or yeah. a uh, inspired by and then like different systems inspire hacking in different ways like I mentioned, we've talked about Power by the Apocalypse a lot, but also I mentioned earlier, I, I hacked Trophy to make something called Goblin Market, which uses that system. And those are so, those are so disparate. Like those two systems are nothing alike. And so if you're hacking Power by the Apocalypse, it's going to create a specific, and this is probably why you do it, is because it's going to create a specific type of experience just by the way the rules are shaped. Whereas with Trophy, the rules are very, not sedentary, but it's hard to change the rule system for that and not like have it be the same game or be the same system. But the way that you apply your setting to the rules is the difference for that particular system. Like 
because the setting in trophy games is literally the antagonist. You're, it's basically um, player versus the environment and the environment is openly hostile. It's basically how you're going to take that concept and then change it to where it's not exactly the same as the original trophy, but still make it interesting and still make use of the rule set they have. Yeah, and there are other lots of other systems too. I I um, haven't had a chance to play trophy, although it's on my to be played list. Um, but like another really popular one is like the Forged in the Dark mm-hmm. um, games. Um, any any system that has an SRD, um, I mean they that's basically saying like, hey, come hack our games. Um, and it just happens a lot in gaming too because you can't copyright a mechanic. You can mm-hmm. you can only copyright like the way you are stating these rules. Um, so there's there's nothing really like as a designer, it's always good and ethical practice to credit your inspirations. It is yes. always very good ethical practice to do it. But there's there's no there's no law that says like, oh, you think that your system is this different enough for like, yeah, it might use like a playbook or something like that. There's no law that says you have to say it's a powered by the apocalypse game. Oh my gosh, I'll say it right one time eventually. Uh, or it's a Forge of the Dark game or um, inspired by blah, blah, blah. It's just good practice to do and will will make you, it won't burn bridges for you because mm-hmm. if someone someone's like, yeah, that's very clearly a hack of this game and you didn't give them credit. That's bad reputation for you. And sometimes it's also useful for like marketing purposes too. Like if there's a big fan base for trophy, for example, or even the creators of trophy, like that's something that they would be interested. Oh, you hacked my game. That's so awesome. Let me talk about this to my followers it's a good jumping off point. Like Powered by the Apocalypse was once, I mean, I it's still very popular, but that was like a really big selling point for a lot of games at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it still it, is. It still is to an extent. There's there's a there's a subset of gamers who just want to see all the different things that a particular system can do. They'll they'll try out all sorts of different fake games or they'll try out all sorts of different Savage Worlds games um, or PBTA or whatever because they yeah. want to see like, well, how do people innovate? What do people add? Like, sure. what do they tweak? podcasts just based on certain systems so yeah 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 some people just have a favorite system and the more that is available in that system the more likely they are going to play it it's not like they're going to be like well i like the system so i'm only going to play this one game it's mm-hmm. going to it's like going into a candy store and going oh but i like all these flavors too and then they play and buy all of the other iterations just because it's something they already know they enjoy yeah, oh, I, there, there's a game about vampire hunting and I don't have to learn a new system because it's in the system that I love so much. <laughs> yes, <yeah>. please. <laughs> I think that there's going to be like pretty soon, um, there's going to be a pretty big um, renaissance of hacking uh, like a D20 system, like a D&D system kind of thing because a lot of people are getting into this. They've been playing 5e for years now. It gets old playing pseudo medieval fantasy over and over and over again there there's going to be this desire for people to be expanding their horizons into different genres and flavors of this game and dnd doesn't really have a lot of <laughs> wiggle room when it comes to other genres in my opinion uh there, well, there's going yeah, to be a boom 
yeah, there's there's D and D players that they just want to play D and D and go for it. But then there's D and D players that are like, well, this is what I cut my teeth on, um, and you know, I can I, I'd like to play a science fiction game. So okay, well, like Starfinder's close to that. Yeah. Um, and or there, you know, some somebody else has generated a you know created a, a 5e compatible um, science fiction kind of game or <clears throat> you know whatever the genre is that you're looking for. Um, I think the I would like, I'd, I'd love to see more exploration of that. Every so often I see a game that somebody's done a 5e hack into whatever other type of, uh, you know, something very different from swords and sorcery yeah. kind of stuff. And I always find myself curious, like I follow, I follow the Kickstarter. I try to see like, you know, is this, does this has, does this have traction? Is this something that people are interested in there? Like where is, is, is the base there? Um, and, uh, I guess I just don't have enough market research capability to really, you know, to parse whether all that kind of happens because there's certainly a lot of different genres that could use the 5e system um, just fine because the 5e system does some does certain things very, very well. And you could you can you can take that into other genres and um, styles of, of game. Um, yeah, not you know, certain ones, certain certain types of games don't work well for 5e but there are certain certainly plenty that would um yeah that's a pretty i think common... i think i think it gets lost in the glut of of D stuff that's being put out which is the problem you see 5e compatible this or that and it's almost always um fantasy oriented stuff that's going to be directly compatible with D D. um so you you sometimes may miss like oh that was an apocalyptic game <laughs> that somebody put together or a cyberpunk game or something like that yeah, that's that's definitely a big Twitter discourse thing too. Is there are a lot of people that, or let me put this: there are a lot of designers that are just like, "Well, D and D shouldn't be everything." And I'm like, "Well, what if the people want to play with that system? Like, if that's what they enjoy, then let them create like a sci-fi game or um, like a, a urban fantasy game." It's just not everyone's going to love every single system that's out there. And I don't feel like being down on people who do enjoy the D&D system is helpful in any way. Yeah. Like, let them enjoy what they enjoy. <laughs> no, that's that's 100% true. And so many people, you know, a lot, of, it's, it's the biggest thing out there. A lot of people are getting into playing tabletop role-playing games because of D&D. That's how I started playing. And I mean, I, I just know from personal experience that there are going to be lots of people who are going to get either bored with the sword and sorcery genre, they're going to want to do something different, and they're either going to hack their hack the system themselves, they're going to homebrew things themselves, or they're going to find a new system, or they're going to find your hacked system mm -hmm. out there. And it's, you know, rising tides lift all ships in this case. I really do believe that for this this field, although I think Watsi has a bigger hold on the market than I want them to have, but you can capitalize on the fact that they have, you know, you can hack their games. You, you can do this too. And there will be, when I, when I talk to my students, I'm, I'm a teacher. When I talk to my students, so many more of them are playing D and D specifically, like they've, they've gotten into 5e many, many more than when I was in high school. And it, it's been a while, but it hasn't been that long. And this is, it's, there's this huge market now for it. And they're going to want to start playing more stuff. And there are people who are coming from not just white Midwest backgrounds where they grew up hearing like 
like a lot of people like to play like that pseudo medieval Europe kind of background because that's like the they grew up in King Arthur stories and all these these kinds of um, like European based stories, but there are people coming from other backgrounds that that have different cultural touchstones that they will want to use instead. And this is it's it's going to change. Um, I, I don't I feel it. <laughs> I, I feel it <laughs> from knowing my students, from knowing the young people who are playing games. It, it's going to start changing. And uh, if you are a game designer and um, you want a little piece of that, I would maybe recommend looking into hacking 5B or another kind of a D20 style game like that, because that's going to be the first jumping off point. Yeah, they're stepping stones. There's going to be people that are going to decide, okay, I want to try something other than D&D, and they're going to jump all the way to something very, very different. But there's going to be some people, too, that are going to be like baby steps. They just want to like, I just want to play a different genre. I want to play a cyberpunk game. But is there a D20 cyberpunk game? Is there something that like, you know, the rules are familiar to me, I can I can grasp it very quickly. Um and uh, you know they it, it, and people will find new games. They'll start to experiment and see. Oh, you can do so many other things with D twenty systems. Well, well, what can you do with like completely different dice? And then they mm -hmm. might find themselves. What these looking days at, do? <laughs> these I have all dice? of them. What do they do? <laughs> I've yet to see a D four system that I really really <laughs> liked. But if somebody innovates that, let me know. <laughs> okay, I got one. Right, we have a bunch of you. you just take a handful of D four. And you throw them on the ground and you blindfold everybody. <laughs> no shoes. That's the game. <laughs> it's called Lego Simulator. <laughs> and you fog the room and you put like lasers through it. And <laughs> then you're LARPing at that point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I've never seen a D4 system either. <laughs> I'm just, I'm waiting for, because I know someone's going to do it and I want, I'm waiting for it. I want to see what they do with it. There are, there are lots of fun things you can do with it. I've, I've seen lots of fun things with um, different D20s um, and and all of that. Uh, and Magic 8-Balls basically have a, you know, they have a polyhedral die in them. There are a lot of Magic 8-Ball games out there. I say mm -hmm. a lot, but there, there, are, there are several. There's, there are several, yes. Um, yeah, go ahead and have fun with dice. Or yeah, other forms. Other of things. Yeah. I love systems that use other things. I like the fact that there was a playing card renaissance recently where everybody was making games with decks of playing cards. You're welcome. <laughs> There's something fun about like fanning them out in front of your face and and playing with with the cards. Um good society using cards, I think is perfect because it, like I don't know, there's something fancy about holding a hand of cards in your in your hand. But that was also like one of the main like things they did for entertainment back in, in that yeah. era was play cards. So it fits right in with the setting. I yes. have many, many strong feelings about using playing cards. They are so much more versatile than, than dice. You can do so much with one deck of playing cards. I, I absolutely agree. Like I love dice systems, but I like card systems quite a bit. And I really like diceless systems, although those are a lot rarer these days. Yeah, I've, I've never made a card system before. Um, but I I really do enjoy playing them. Um, I, I especially like systems that have their own bespoke decks of fun things. Um, the, it's great. And I just uh, I just listened to the prologue to the new the Adventure Zone um, 
season. They're playing A Quiet Ear by Avery Alder. Oh, okay. And that uses, it uses a, a, like a deck, but it also has like special things on the deck. And yeah, it uses tokens. Yeah, that's it, just, it was really fun to listen to. And I want to, I want to play a round of that. If you want to hack a playing card game out there, Capers is open license. It's Creative Commons, re- released under Caper, Creative Commons. All the rules from all the books. Um, okay. So yeah, I, just, I have. And I, I know a few people. I know a few people that have kind of like tinkered around with some stuff, and they just haven't quite gotten to the point of like putting something out there for somebody. Um, I'm still waiting to see if anybody's ever going to actually hack it into another game. I mean, it could pretty easily be hacked into another game so i came very close to doing it myself <laughs> i explored <laughs> I, I i explored quite a bit um on a sort of post-apocalyptic game using that system um yeah i did a, a game with tarot cards and the funny thing is at the time when i was writing it there are only like one or two other games that use that and then since then it's like exploded and there's a bunch of games that use tarot cards and we all use them like a little bit differently like just like some people do things where if you draw this combination, it does this thing. Whereas like the one that I did was if you draw this particular card, it means this based on the interpretation of the card. And how does that interpret, how do you interpret that into what you're trying to do as your character? I I love tarot cards. I love doing tarot readings and, and rune readings and things like that. And I've been interested in, in making a game or playing a game using those, but like, I think one of the things that's really, um, I don't know, they, because they are, there's so many different combinations, like infinite amounts of combinations or things like that. Is it, is it reverse? Is it, is it paired with this card? Like that, there's a lot to be explored there. And I also heard um, that tarot cards are huge on Kickstarter right now. Like that's a huge selling point for games and, and you get the pretty art. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, there's a lot of people doing really, Really cool, kick, uh, really cool uh, tarot decks on Kickstarter. Apparently, that that has seen a um, a surge of popularity over the last year or so. I have I have two sets of tarot cards in my house. One is like this Egyptian set, which Egyptian and tarot don't like. That doesn't make any sense, but I have them. And I also have a, a Miss Cleo's tarot deck, which is no. my no. favorite deck. I love it so much. The, the art on it's a little jank, but you know, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, part of the reason I decided to use a tarot deck for that particular game for uh, for Praetor Midium was because I had the um, uh, the endless tarot, like the, the Sandman tarot and Dave McKean's art is just so weird and like, I didn't even know how to dream like basically. And I was like, I wonder if I can do something with this and make it into a game. And it turned out being a game about dreams. So I took a very literal interpretation, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, um, you could even do something very similar to like, um, what's the game? Mis- is it Mysterium? The one where you're playing a ghost? Where um, half of like one or two people are playing a ghost and then everybody else is playing like the investigators and you're trying to help yeah. each other solve. Yeah. That's Mysterium. So and a lot of like a lot of tarot readings like people who read the cards will look at specifically the art on the cards and make interpretations that way you do a lot of fun stuff with that like like i said there's so much of interpretation and and pairings and things you can do with cards that you can't do with dice it's it's a lot for my little brain to wrap around <laughs> <laughs> 
I, man, okay, well, I'm going to make that my goal when I'm done with my current project. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to look at the cards. <laughs> I, maybe I'll hack capers. I, I, I would be more than happy to talk to you about just like what I discovered um, from utilizing playing cards. Um, I've, I've, I've talked about it on podcasts before. I've blogged about it. Just the, the plethora of, of different ways uh, that you can utilize cards as opposed to dice. <laughs> I also noticed, um, I don't know if everybody is doing this, but I know that Jeff Stormer has a game that you literally are playing like gin rummy, and that is the mechanic. So <laughs> I, ne I had never seen anyone do that before. Like I'd seen people do different things with the decks of playing cards, but that one in particular, it's like, no, this is an actual game that people might already know how to play. And he managed to work it into like how, how his game was set up. And it was just, it was really cool. So now I'm like, can we do this with other games? Like, can we like teach people to play like, you know, bridge or whist and incorporate that into a role-playing game in some way? Um, a game about living in the Midwest based on Euchre oh. would be <laughs> so fun. I don't, I've lived in Michigan basically all my life and Michigan, Indiana and Euchre is the game. I still don't know the rules. People have tried to teach me, but <laughs> some other Midwesterner wants to take on that job. <laughs> Okay, that, whatever the Trump fun. suit is, the jack is the highest one, and that's called the left bower. And then the jack of the opposite <laughs> suit, but in the same color, is the second highest Trump. <laughs> like bower. left bower sounds like some sort of like position someone would hold. Yeah. Like. Or maybe it's the right and the left. It's been a long time since I played played euchre, but they're the, yeah the bowers. Yeah, your your Trump the jacks are always the better, the best cards. And they, <laughs> people never want to play with, with each me. other. Euchre's, Euchre's a funky game. Yeah, they never want to play with me because, you know, it's, it's a game where you have to have partners. Um, and if you have yeah. a bad partner, you're going to lose the game. And that's no fun. So no one wants to play with me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I saw that that game uh, Jess Stormer did. And I was really jealous that I didn't think of that idea. I first. know, right? God, it's so brilliant. And I'm like, damn it, he got to it first. I know. <laughs> it's one of those things that seems like, oh, like, that's how you know it's a really good idea is when you're making other people upset that they didn't get there. <laughs> like it seems so obvious, even though jo it wasn't. <laughs> Joey, maybe you could hack it. <laughs> I might be able to hack it. I don't know. <laughs> it was very specific. I'm trying to remember what the name of it was so I could tell people, but it's just not coming to me. It was very specific to like what he was doing. Oh, it was maybe where we were born to run because it was based after the Bruce Springsteen song. And you were playing to determine like where the relationship went. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a lot of fun ideas now. I wish like I wish all of the fun things I want to do didn't come in the middle of me trying to do another project. The the temptation to <laughs> just drop everything and try something new is so strong. I just have a notebook where like if I get ideas, I like scribble down like the basics and then I'm like, okay, I'm putting that aside and I'll keep working on what I'm doing now. Yeah, I do that all the time. I have uh, just, you know, a, a folder full of, of Word documents that are like literally the every Word document is just an idea and it'll be like, here's the here's here's like the, the basics of what I think the game is about and mm -hmm. here's like an idea for what the mechanics might look like or, you know, what sort of thing you might utilize. And it's, it's you know, a, a quarter of a page. Yeah, I, um, of stuff just jotted down. I learned a trick from Elisa Teague um, about like like how she said that Elisa Teague is um, she works at Renegade Game Studios. She did um, Geek Out, um, 
that game, but she has a, she keeps in her notebook. She said uh, mechanics and like thematic ideas separately, just as they come. Uh And then like, we'll go through and pair things together later when it like comes to her, which I thought was a really cool way to organize. It is. Yeah, this has been fun. Uh, (laughs) Again, a lot of, I always come out of this like, oh yeah, let's go make a game. Uh, uh, Joy, thank you so much for um, coming and speaking with us. This was uh, a ton of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. And where where can we find you on on the internet or, or what cool projects do you have to plug right now? Um, so you can find my company at drowningmoonstudios.com. I know that's really long, but it's three words. <laughs> um, but you can also find me on Twitter at um, honey and honey in hedgerow because it's not I couldn't put honey and they didn't like that. I wanted the in in the middle. So honey in hedgerow is where you can find me on Twitter. And um, I just came out with a game called Mage to Order. We just got the print proofs back. So that's going to be the physical book is going to be like at least at some conventions when they're holding conventions. I know they're supposed to be at Gen Con through, through IVGN. Um, and that one is an original system. It's not a hack. Um, and it's basically about like um, a magical, a giant techno magical city and you play magical maintenance workers. And it's a humorous game. Um, <laughs> and then coming up this October, the game I was talking about earlier, Follow Me Down, which is the uh, Power by the Apocalypse two-player game where you're playing, it's based on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. So you're basically playing, one person plays Orpheus, the Orpheus playbook, and one person plays the Eurydice playbook. And you're going into the underworld and coming out of the underworld and exploring your relationship in the process. And then October 6th, I'm kickstarting that. So it's gotten a lot of good reception. I'm really hoping that I can I can make it the book that I want it make it because I feel like it deserves a royal treatment because it's such an epic story. It's one of my favorite myths. Always makes me sad to think about. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at at Joska, although I'm currently locked down on Twitter, but uh, you can also find my games at wannabegames.com, which is not locked down. (laughs) <laughs> and you can find um, me at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter and uh, the game company is nerdburgergames.com. Um, capers and Good Strong Hands are both available at the store at nerdburgergames.com, like the really nice um, offset print version um, with the PDF uh, with that. Um, but then otherwise, uh, other stuff is at drivethroughrpg.com. And I am very, very close to playtesting um, Secrets of the Vibrant Isle. So which I want to play. Uh, I, I've got to I've got to finish getting that together. Um and putting it because it's it's a killer because it has to be the entire thing has to be completely written in order to play test it. You cannot play test this game in pieces. Um so I'm getting close. I'm so close. <laughs> thank you again, Joy, and thank you all for listening. And we'll see you back here next time.